Hey everybody, welcome back to the One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. And I'm Sarah Hendricks. And today we're here with Kurt Wilkin, who's the co-founder of Hire Better, an award-winning agency based in Austin, Texas. Yeah, and Kurt just came out with the book, Who's Your Mic? A no guide to the people you'll meet on your entrepreneurial journey. All right, so let's get into the conversation with... Kurt Wilkin. Well, we're here welcoming Kurt Wilkin to the podcast today. We're so excited to have you here, Kurt. Thanks for joining us. Man, thanks so much for having me, Sarah. I love what you guys are doing with The One Thing. So give us a little bit about your backstory. You know, obviously you're here because of your amazing brand new book, but tell us a little bit about your history and how you got here. So I started off as a CPA with Ernst & Young. And I realized very quickly that I'm not a very good accountant, which doesn't make a good uh, long history at Ernst & Young. And uh, I, I did stay there for four years and, and I learned that I really love people more than I love numbers. So I ended up having a solid career, but I, it wasn't my future. And uh, I did a dot-com stint in the late 90s until uh, that went belly up like a lot of other dot-coms in the late 90s. And I started consulting to make ends meet. I had a new baby and a new wife. And I started doing uh, consulting. And before you knew it, I built a business to about $20 million in revenue, 100 employees. And the main uh, thing that helped me propel the company forward was having a partner who was really good at the things I wasn't. And so that's been a big draw in my career now is how do I replicate that with our clients and other people? So we had a great success, had an exit. I bought Hire Better in 2011 because I felt like the recruiting industry was broken. And if talent is so important, why is the industry so broken? And uh, we've built a little business helping entrepreneurs uh, scale their organization. So that's what Hire Better does. And the book is all about, um, well, we'll get into the book later, I'm sure. Well, and I, I get the pleasure of saying the title because I, I have to say it, but it's, Who's Your Mic? A No Guide to the People You'll Meet on Your Entrepreneurial Journey. We wrestled with using the word or not, but we decided, you know what, we want to be very authentic and entrepreneurs curse from time to time. And sometimes it's, it's not BS. You made Sarah very happy by using that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the resident cursor. So uh, the sailor of the group. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so I think we, we both want to know, and this might be a preemptive question, but you can ask it, Chris. Who's your mic? Oh, I've had a number of mics over the years. Um, most of them have not been named Mike. There's another story on that that I, I don't. I won't get into publicly. Um, do you want to know who Mike is? Sure. Yes. So the quick story, and we just dropped the video on this because we get the question all the time. Mike is your was your fraternity brother in college. He was your best bud. You guys did everything together, and you trusted Mike with your life. When you started your business in your garage, Mike was right there with you nights and weekends from his day job, doing all the administrative things that you kind of suck at and you really hate doing. Just anything that didn't relate to the product or, or sales. And then you became a real company and Mike quit his day job, joined you full-time as your accountant. Now he's still doing all those back office things, setting up your LLC, setting up your bank account, learning QuickBooks. I mean, all the things that accountants do. Anything non, again, non-sales or, biz or uh, product related. As you continue to grow, you become a more legit company and he's working 100 hours a week to try to keep the everything churning. And he's, you certainly notice he's in over his head. But you promote him to controller and ultimately CFO because those are the next logical titles. And hey, titles are cheap, right? So he's now your CFO. You're doing $10, $12 million in revenue. He's trying to negotiate a $10 million line of credit with your bank. 
maybe a large merger agreement with your largest competitor and you realize Mike is swimming. He's swirling so in over his head he doesn't know what to do, but he didn't want to tell you because he's so loyal to you. The question is, who's your Mike? Every entrepreneur has a Mike or has had or will have a Mike, whether it's finance and accounting, sometimes it's sales, marketing operations, somebody you've outgrown who's been a strong, loyal attendant for you for years. So part of that is just recognizing maybe you're in that situation, but if you're looking to make a change and, and find the right person, what advice do you have for, for someone and how they could inform the correct hire? Well, the reason Mike's so important is because sometimes you already have somebody in that seat and we need to determine what we're going to do with Mike. So that's a whole nother story. You asked about how to go, in, to go find the right person. You really need to understand, just like you do with the one thing, where are you going as an organization? What are you trying to create? What are, we, what are the steps needed to get us there? And then from there, what is the team I need to, to, to get us there? And once you figure out the future state team, now you start looking at what does my current team look like? Don't put names in boxes until you figure out what those roles are. Because if you put names in boxes too early, you're going to get all emotional and tied to, well, I got to have a spot for Sarah because she's been so important to me. And what I want to do is, is try to take emotion out of it. That's, that's before we even start looking for somebody. Usually the recruiting industry is, client says, I need somebody tomorrow. But what we're trying to say is before you go out and find somebody that you think you need, let's really assess your team and think what, you, what do you truly need? So that's part of your question. Yeah, we, we follow a process at the one thing called goal setting to the now, which is imagine extraordinary, some interval into the future. So be 10 years into the future for your organization. What would extraordinary look like and set a goal based on that? And what that can do is inform your future org chart, which you can then, the goal setting to the now piece is work your way back. So, okay, based on that extraordinary vision at 10 years and the people it would take to get there, what would I need to do or where would we need to be in five years? And based on that, what do we need to be? Where do we need to be this year? And who do we have to hire? Not the person, but the talent, the skill, the, the, the box that you need to fill. Does that seem like it fits with the way you would approach it? It absolutely does. And, and what you said there is I'm looking 10 years out. What some entrepreneurs do is they try to put, um, they try to imagine you in that role in 10 years. But the likelihood of you being in that same role, that CFO role now at $2 million in revenue versus 10 years from now when you're 50 million in revenue or 100 million is slim. So you're going to almost by definition uh, grow, outgrow people and have to replace them. That's hard for entrepreneurs who are emotionally you know, bonded with our employees or people who got us there, but they're likely not the people who are going to get us there. Not all the time. I have a, a history with a, a startup or, or an entrepreneur that I worked with back in the day. And um, the beauty of the organization was he had so many talented friends around him that that's who he hired. So name the first 30 people that were hired into this organization. They were all friends. And if you watch the trajectory of how their relationship and and the evolution of the organization, it it was a really challenging thing to watch because it was emotional. It was a business decision, but you very quickly outgrow people and it's got to be okay because that's the best thing that needs to be done for the business. And I feel like that's really hard for people. It absolutely is. The, we call it FOF or FOK, friends of Kurt, friends of founders. I mean, at some point it, it works great until it doesn't. 
Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. it's probably in their best interest too, right? They're not in the right seat for their own growth and development and continuing to to drown or be in over your head isn't going to give you the steps and the skills, the awareness, the knowledge you need to move the, rec- the direction that you need to ultimately. That's one of the key takeaways from the book. If you've got somebody who's humble enough to recognize that they're not, maybe not the right answer, it's a glorious conversation. They, they realize it themselves and they're inviting, almost inviting the conversation. But some people want to be that you know, your right hand for the rest of their career. And that's just not simply how it works usually. So you talk about something really topical in the book and it is a COVID a pandemic, the great resignation, whatever whatever excuse you want to come up with. And I'm curious what your take is on everyone that wants to say, well, the workforce, like it's a mess right now or everyone wants to quit or there's this great resignation. Like, how do you, Kurt, feel about that? Well, I think it's a great question. It actually aligns with what you guys are doing with the one thing. I think the great resignation is somewhat of a myth. Now, there are people leaving in larger numbers than they were, but on a trajectory from where it was in 2019, it's about the same. What happened is 2020, no one left because you know they, they're clinging to their job. I think you even mentioned on your podcast, Chris, when you were introduced, you, you stayed where you were because you, you needed a job. That's right. And, uh, and what we're seeing over the last six months, now it has changed in the last couple of months. So this is, uh, it is very topical. What's changed is people are leaving. Some of them are leaving for money, but most of them are leaving for purpose. That's why I think it aligns with what you guys are doing with the one thing, because people are leaving for purpose. So me as an entrepreneur, one of the biggest things I can do long-term to really help my company is is to um, institute and make sure that I have a purpose that's worth living for my organization, that we're living towards it, and it's living, breathing, not just words on a wall. Would you call that culture? Absolutely. Yeah. Culture is one of those words that, it's a eye of the beholder. It gets used in many different ways. And I, I think it's culture resonates with me. When when you think about purpose or how you might define purpose into something more tangible for an entrepreneur, what would that look like? Well, there's a chapter, it's intermission three in the in the book is about it. But here, here's the main thing. One is uh, if, if you, like during COVID, you know, you had companies that were distilleries that were changing and becoming hand sanitizer businesses overnight, right? That's purpose. They're living their purpose. Now they're doing something for the, for the world. If you're a solar company or if you're a, um, you know, water treatment company, you're doing something that everybody needs. And so it's kind of easy to fall into the purpose. If you're a dry cleaner, it's a little harder to say, I'm going to change the world as my purpose. But I'm convinced that even the dry cleaner can have a purpose that is impactful for the world. For example, you might be a dry cleaner that, that, uh, um, you use good for good for you products in your in your uh, in your process. Maybe you um, 
convenience and price is, is your purpose. It's something more than just, um, it's not a save the world purpose, but it's still a purpose. It's a question, it's a question I get a lot when I run workshops and, and we, we go through this. They're like, well, how do I identify my purpose? Like, what is that? Like, how do I turn this somewhat at times nebulous concept into something that I can, I can access? And where I've gone to is, is values. Um, I, I, I work through core values and you can do that, I think, with teams and an organization as well to help them identify what their true values are or their core values and then goals. And I think the combination of those two things has helped me clarify for teams and individuals what purpose could be, especially when you start to get into, you know, out into the future, like aspirationally, who do we want to become? I I should have just, instead of answered that question, instead of pointed to you guys, because you guys do so much good work in that realm. Appreciate it. We, we, we invest a lot of time in, in that piece because it's at the root of, of what we teach, right? Above, if you think of the, the iceberg analogy, above the water is what we produce. What you see is the profit, the, in the outcomes, the productivity of a particular body of work or a team. But beneath that, you know, is the ability to prioritize like what matters most, but in alignment with a, a greater vision. But ultimately that is at the, the root is the purpose. Yeah, culture is one of those things that, you know, 10 years ago, you might get some sneers from people. And even today, you get some people, oh, that's soft stuff. I don't want to talk about that. But the reality is the employees that you want to attract now are drawn to not just a purpose, again, that's on a wall, but something you live and breathe. If it's above the surface, as you said, and it's not really below the surface, you're going to get found out quickly and people will leave. But if you truly do live that purpose, you have those core values that they're so ingrained in who you are as an organization and it's impactful— that's that's the type of people you want to attract. I'm so curious because as somebody who is a recruiter and is dealing with a new wave of C-suite level folks and and the rise of let's say the millennial generation into more director level, are you seeing a generational shift between, you know, those outgoing C-suite level people and those new ones coming in saying, "Yeah, culture is like I want a purpose where I work." Um or is it just you know, we're all kind of the same. We're running in the same direction. It's just a curiosity question, really. I think there is some generational things, but it's not, it's so much different than it was three years ago. So three years ago, guys like me are like, oh, you know, those damn millennials, all they do is work 40 hours and work from home or, you know, whatever. Nowadays, it's not just the generation, millennials and below, I forget what the next generation is called, but it's not just those guys and gals looking for that purpose more than just a paycheck. It's people like me, people like Chris, people like Sarah that are now saying, life is too effing short. COVID has taught me, if, if anything, I can, I can work from Colorado in my Austin, you know, for my Austin job. I don't have to live the grind. I can live my dream and I can work for companies that actually care. It's interesting. It- I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. Do you feel like COVID really provided a gut check for for people? I mean, you're just running fast. You've got your head down for years and just hit the pause button for everyone. They picked their head up and said, "What am I really doing?" And now you're seeing that show up just across the board. So I got to give a shout out to a, a guy that was in one of my CEO forums I created during COVID, Craig Wiley. He said, "Guys, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reimagine everything." Like, I don't have to do the crap that, I'm sorry, shit, Sarah, for years, <laughs> that I've been doing my entire career. Um, I can do something different. And frankly, this, me being out here speaking and, and writing the book and doing these podcasts and whatnot, I didn't do that three years ago, but COVID forced me out of my comfort zone and it, it, it made me 
step out there and, and do more. And, and it's really amazing to see the impact we're having on entrepreneurs. Well, and that's a really good segue because in Who's Your Mic, you have a whole section on in-person versus remote versus hybrid. And that's been such a hot topic of conversation because employers really want people to come back to the office. And you've got, you know, some generations that are saying, I don't want to go back. How how has that affected, you know, really your teachings and and how you've approached it with the book? You know, I think uh, entrepreneurs and, and CEOs, it's it's really their choice. And and I know many many of my friends here in Austin, they still want people to come to the office. And and I don't know what 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 you guys do here, but they want people in the office, and that's okay. It just means it's going to attract a different person, somebody who's drawn to that. We tell our clients in in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, that it's hard to recruit a killer CFO for you know small small town if you want them in person every day. So it, it does impact the recruitment of, of of those types of people. Yeah, and it, what what have you seen from your perspective in in this pendulum swing from um, I guess success metrics? You know, we we were in the office for years and. Then all of a sudden, we had the opportunity to work exclusively from home. Do you have any insight on, you know, when that swung out to the work from home now starting to come back around, you know, where we've we've seen that uh, just from an outcomes perspective? I don't have any idea where it's going to go, but I think going into the office twenty four seven is is not coming back for for most companies. So, I'll, I'll give you a personal experience. So, when I bought Hire Better, we were all virtual, and I like people in the office. So about five years later, I've got half the company in the office because they, you know, I wanted them there and the other half was all over the country. They just physically couldn't come there. I found that if you were supposed to be in the office, but I didn't see you, I would get pissed off. Like, where the hell is Sarah? She's supposed to be here. But I've got, you know, Chris in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, who's I never see. And I just know that he does his job. So everything's fine. So I wasn't a very good leader for an environment. The main thing that I think for most of your audience if you are a leader who has the ability to hold people accountable in the systems and structure to do so, you can do great with any kind of environment, hybrid, virtual, in-person. But if you suck at holding people accountable like I do, you're going to struggle no matter how you structure it. That's so interesting because it's really based on who you are as an entrepreneur and who you are as a leader to make that decision of hybrid, in-person, remote, what have you. And, and you really need to tailor it to how you're best going to serve your employees. I've noticed, yeah, I've noticed the the conversation change a little bit too. And, and being in the office means you're, if anything, like inherently... Uh, concern about what people are doing on the day to day, maybe not so much about the result they need to get to. So you're you're almost micromanaging, even if it's not intentionally. But what I've noticed, where I've noticed the shift is with work from work from home or work remote. I've seen leaders become more focused on, hey, here's where we need to get to, uh, and then utilizing tools to help them with accountability in the process. Yeah, it can be magical if done right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we we utilize a tool at Productive and, and the one thing called the 411. But the 411 breaks down, you know, goals for the year, uh, checkpoints to those goals for the month, and then the activities that you're working on each week that really helps leaders give visibility into, you know, where's my team focused? How can I influence that in a way that's positive? Give them coaching and guidance, but then create this accountability towards how they contribute to the overall goal. I love it. Let's circle back. We talked about Mike and Mike, uh, we've recognized that Mike is maybe not the right fit for where the organization's going long-term. And it's in, you know, of mutual best interest that we consider a shift there. So what do, what do we do with Mike? It's a great question. And it's hard to just say, 
I'm just going to get rid of Mike. And, and frankly, you don't have to get rid of Mike. Mike could have a lot of value in the organization. So a couple of questions I like to ask just on the high, high level is, is Mike an asshole that you can't, like, is a cancer to the organization? The answer is easy. Get rid of him. Is he coachable? Could he become the CFO of the future? Yeah, maybe you get him a coach. Maybe you invest in an executive coach type thing or a mentor or something like that. Um, if he's just a solid individual contributor, you don't think he's got the leadership skills in order to be able to get there, there might be a role as a, in, in this case, a controller or an accountant versus the CFO. So that's the backdrop. Mike doesn't have to go. Everybody hears the title and hears a story like, oh no, I hope I'm not Mike. Reality is Mike still could be a good guy or gal. Um, I like to ask four questions about any of my legacy employees to determine if they're the right fit for me going forward. And I've amalgamated these from people like Vern Harnish and Gino Wickman. I'm sure Gary Keller's in there somewhere, but here's, here are the four questions. The first one is, knowing today what I know about my organization and where I'm going, would I enthusiastically rehire Mike in this example for the CFO role? And based on the story of Mike, probably not. Not enthusiastically, not for the CFO role. Okay, that's one data point. The next is, does Mike have the skills, experience, and tools necessary to get me to that proverbial next level from 20 to 40 or whatever the, the range is? Maybe, probably not in this, again, in this case. Then the next two questions are more gut check questions. The first one is, what if I had a team full of mics? Like my entire team was mics. You might be thinking, oh my God, Mike's a chaotic mess, no effing way. So there's kind of a gut check. And the fourth one is, what if Mike came into your office tomorrow and quit? Would you be relieved? You might have an immediate shock, like, oh, please, I don't like change. But then after you got over that, you'd probably be very relieved that Mike, Mike left. So those are four questions that help you determine if Mike is the right person in that organization. Again, he could be reassigned, but be careful moving people around to different parts of the organization to appease them or to find the fit or whatever. Have a whole other chapter called Bounce Around Betty, which is that what's happened. Just keep going around bouncing from job to job. Well, I was just going to ask, and and I'm curious if there are other personas that you speak to, not just obviously there's Mike, but some of these bounce around Bettys and and Harry the Hustler. I, I love these. One of the big ones is, is Harry the Hustler. And, and this is a classic that most of your entrepreneurial audience will understand. Harry was your your great sales guy who and, or gal for any, any situation who could sell ice to Eskimo. They basically were your right hand. They were they carried you from one to three or five million dollars in revenue. Now you've determined you need to grow faster. You need to get to that quote next level. And so what do you do? And a lot of times we go find more Harrys or we promote Harry to my VP of sales. That's a big mistake, especially if Harry doesn't have the ability to, to, to possibly do that. Because now you might lose uh, Harry, your, your great salesperson, because he's not selling anymore. Now he's managing. But likely, Harry's probably not a very good manager. So you're setting yourself and Harry up for failure. So there's a whole chapter in there about what do we do with Harry? You don't get rid of him, obviously, but maybe you don't promote him. Maybe you give him a coach. Same things we talked about with Mike. Yeah, I, I, that resonates with me. I've seen it. And I've seen it in multiple organizations, both both of those, Mike and and Harry the Hustler, and I, I've, I've I can relate to each of those experiences very very personally, and it it's always seemed like to me, especially for someone that I've coached or influenced, like it's two components. Like, do they have the willingness to get where they need to go, and do they have the capability? And if they're even most of the way on either of those, it's worth the investment. Uh, better if they have both. 
but willingness and capability. And I really, I love those four questions. That's such a great, because you're kind of covering all your bases there. And it does give different perspective because as you're going through that, I was asking myself this on, you know, a couple of people I've worked with in the past that have seen it. And it, it's really interesting what comes out of those questions. Like, I, I really like that. So would you rehire them? It's like, what got you here won't get you there. You know, that, that whole classic statement, you know, do they have this, the skills and the tools? That's like that that capability piece. Like, can they, are they capable of getting where you need to go? And, you know, if you had a team full of mics, that one's really <laughs> interesting because I, I see that. And then in certain teams, do you see there being like a, an appropriate balance though? Like Mike fits as an individual and that makes sense versus him, you know, if you had 10 mics and that shifting the balance, does that, does that make sense? So like if one mic, good for the team. 10 mics, not so good for the team. Does that does that make sense? It absolutely does. Because I've had employees that were all-stars in their role, but I could imagine 10 because they're high maintenance. Right. right? So. Yeah. Yeah. I think like if you have someone who's who's like overly optimistic, like all the time, just like, you know, the, the blind spots that could create. So if you have someone who's very skeptical on your team, that's kind of like a nice, like both ends of the spectrum. Well, I mean, look, you're gonna, you need balance. So it might not be related to that part of the question. Like if someone's so, so totally optimistic, I need the balance. Um, but my point is if you had a team full of drama or a team full of like go-getters, do whatever you need. I mean, those are those are uh, great to have. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. Just curious as I was thinking through that, uh, where that balance showed up. And, and the last one is what if he quit? Like if that, that really hit for me, because I've been in that seat before where I've, I've asked that question, not intentionally, but... It was in the subconscious and it's really interesting. I love those questions. It's great for entrepreneurs too, because you really have to be, A, those questions are amazingly simple, but also you have to have the self-awareness to be super honest with yourself, especially when you're talking about hiring somebody like your fraternity brother who ha has stayed with you forever. Um, and that ability to to be so honest with yourself is so important and something I think that people just want to maintain the relationship so they don't want to go there. It's funny, the epilogue is called when you're the problem. And that is, <laughs> you can have a great team, you can have a great recruiter, you can just hire the right folks. But if you're a pain in the ass and hard to work with or you run people off or you can't change your chaotic ways, um, it's not going to fix itself. Do you have any any common like signals or you know uh, checkpoints of self-awareness someone could look for to see if maybe they are? potentially that person? Um, that one's hard because it's a lot of blind spots. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that most entrepreneurs have some people around them that could be honest, a coach or a YPO or a Vistage for, you know, forum mate or, or EO or something like that, or maybe they're, they're one thing uh, group, right? Yeah, we leverage accountability partners or coaches and that we function as that. We have a, a piece of our business, we do that, but we also do it with each other and internally and found that to be very effective and We've talked about that here on the podcast and the value of an accountability partner and some of the characteristics you're looking for from that person. So you'll get that honest feedback. Do you think that that's like in in the grand scheme of priorities for entrepreneurs that finding, quote unquote, an accountability partner or a partner is the most important thing or the most uh, progressive thing they can do to ensure that they're successful. So I think the accountability partner helps in a number of ways, helping you see blind spots, helping you hire because many entrepreneurs are optimistic and gla glass half full, me included. Uh, so I struggle with hiring. So I think that's a big part of it. Your your other question though was, was uh, my last three chapters of the book are around a character I call Next Level Natalie. And that's your operating partner, your execution partner, somebody who can really help you run the business so you can chase all the rainbows and sell all the 
widgets and, you know, uh, create a great product. Many entrepreneurs, not all, but the vast majority of entrepreneurs are what um, Gino Wickman and and, uh, Mark Winters and Rocket Fuel call visionaries. They're very good at visionary type stuff, the the product, the, the, the sales but they struggle with holding people accountable. They struggle with uh, metrics. They ho- struggle with really managing the P&L. And so I think so many of those folks need that operating partner. Uh, those guys call it an integrator, but somebody to do all the, the managing part that is so hard for many of us to understand. That's the biggest unlocking move. And if I was to uh, um, coach your entrepreneurs who are one to $5 million in revenue looking to try to scale, the one thing would be to try to find that partner who can help them carry the business forward. There's a lot of other people below that that would be part of your team, but the one thing is that key unlocking move, that key hire. Yeah, and then knowing where you want to take being, like leveraging your your visionary capabilities to know where you want to take the business at some greater distance and using that to inform the characteristics that person should have. And And that's where I think you also need that accountability partner to help you Ask the right questions of the uh, of the candidates because you can easily be swayed and, and make bad hires in that. Yeah, and that that's a that's a great point. I mean, any I think we at least are all aware of some of the cost of a bad hire, but when you really start to put it on paper, the the numbers or the the impact of bringing someone into the organization that isn't the right fit is is pretty exponential. Especially for your smaller entrepreneurial companies, it's going to set you back quite a bit. Now, the flip side, if you make a great hire. Now we're talking about rocket fuel, you know, rocket ship type growth. So there's, there's the, some people get skittish and say, I don't want to make a hire because I don't want to make a bad hire. Well, I'll turn it around and say, if you make a great hire, you're off to the races. For somebody that's just starting out a small business or an entrepreneur, when do you know you've made a great hire? And I know that we could say it's soft skills, it's hard skills, you're seeing KPIs and ROI through the roof, but there's got to be something there where you're like, that was the right person. Do you have any feedback on what that might look like for somebody? Yeah, I think it's somebody who's a self-starter. They've got grit. They figure things out. They're curious. They, they're not waiting around ask, you know, asking you what they can do. They're not leaving at three. I mean, people that really have that it and that grit. Um, I've had so many people that sounded so good in an interview, but then they're, they, they don't work hard. They don't do what it takes to be successful. They, they're always asking you what to do and or they're just not around and you know they're not working. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's doing the work on the front end, right? As much as you can, but I guess not to the point where you you limit or you restrict what opportunities are there for you, but making sure you make the investment and in identifying, you know, who that person is and whether they're a good fit. Mm-hmm. Now, you speak directly to entrepreneurs and startups in your book, but do you think this scales across corporate America and already established organizations as well? You know, we we purposefully wrote it just for entrepreneurs and not even for entrepreneurial companies because I didn't want employees to start seeing themselves as bounce around Betty or as whatever. But uh, at, at the end of the day, all employees, the feedback I've gotten has been, hey, this hits home for me. I'm not an entrepreneur, but it, this hits home for me. We've had those people, Chris, as you were saying. And corporate America has the same problems. They're just bigger. And they have lazy people that aren't working hard. That I've, I've, Three of my characters are that variety, Pipeline Paul, Techno Tim, and uh, Resume Ralph. Those are fun characters if you really want to talk about people that are bad hires. Those are, those are fun stories. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> now I'm interested. <laughs> 
Well, let's say with, with sales, we were talking about Harry the Hustler earlier. Pipeline Paul is the big swing and you know what that comes in from the outside with the big Rolodex of all these great sales he's going to make. He just played golf with the CFO at Dell and that's one of your big, you know, big pursuits. His best man in his wedding was some muckety muck and he's plays, you know, he knows all these people and he talks a big game. So you, you bring him on, you fall for the siren song. Well, you ask them how things are going. Well, we're not quite ready to do all that stuff yet because I need the marketing material. We're not professional enough yet. So, you know, three or four or five months in, we're still learning the business, still trying to create all the, you know, baffling with bullshit that he needs to sell. Finally, he goes to start talking to people and yeah, this is going to happen. It's in the pipeline. That's why he's called Pipeline Paul. It's always in the pipeline. It never seems to matriculate down to the, to the P&L. So, you know, a year later, you're like, what's going on? Oh, Kurt, sit down. This is big boy stuff. This isn't mom and pop stuff you've been selling anymore. I'm trying to sell to the big wigs. This is big leagues. And so he just keeps, that that pipeline is never, never seems to happen. And so finally a year and a half in, you're like, man, I, I can't cut this anymore. I'm paying this guy a lot of money. So you let him go. And I think that's why there's a lot of salespeople with a year and a half, two years on the resume. Because that first year to get up to speed, learn a little bit about the business. And then, you know, six months later, you're like, I can't deal with this anymore. So what do you do with Pipeline Paul? So we have some fun stories about that. Yeah. As a marketing person, Pipeline Paul and I just, yeah, just I already am like, oh, I remember that guy. You're triggered already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is it, is it just being clear about what success looks like for that person, that role in shorter time period? Saying, hey, here's where we need to be in 90 days. And if we're not there, just being honest and realistic about, hey, this this is, you know, this timeline isn't isn't a year long to to produce results. Like, how do we how do we mitigate against him? Well, well or her? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sales are tough because right, it, it's it depends on your lead time. What is your normal sales cycle? So thirty days? Is it you know three years? So it's a little bit tough to sell tell you specific timelines, but you should be able to see activity and see real meetings going on. Well, it's like a little bit of inspect what you expect, right? And staying close to the workflow, not you know letting them run free and clear and even if it's not a 90-day interval or something specific, it's more about the behavior of being clear on what success looks like between you and that person and just holding them accountable for that. I think that's part of it, but as many of our entrepreneurs aren't aren't good at holding people accountable. So that's a challenge in and of itself. What I wanted to say though, with, with Paul in particular, many of the clients we work with are three to $10 million in revenue. So they're small, smaller organizations. But I, I get infatuated by the big company background. Somebody work with Disney or Conagra or Dell, or, you know, you name it. Oftentimes that experience selling at companies like that doesn't necessarily translate to my company. I like to say that, you know, the Dell, it's easy to, to get your foot in the door if you're with IBM or, or, or 3M or something like that. But it's hard to get in the door with my Pissant Co., right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to have somebody who can roll up their sleeves and, and be able to, to articulate what you're selling and be able to speak to that audience and have that grit. Mm. I think that also speaks to the environment of a startup, right? Not, you said it beautifully, like what's on your resume doesn't always translate in that organization. And how many times have, you know, you've made a hire that you think is going to be amazing and you bring them in and they can't hang with 
the constantly evolving environment or things are shifting all the time. And it's just like, if it it's so different and it's so challenging. Um, what happens when you're dealing with kind of those folks? I mean, I'm sure it happens all the time that they think, man, I really want free kombucha on tap. So I'm going to go to a startup. And then they're like, no, I can't hang with this. Yeah, it happens all the time. Even in the sales example, somebody who won't sell or can't sell because they don't have the marketing collateral and the client references and all the things that they might have had at their bigger company. And so uh, they, they need to be able to sell air just like the entrepreneur was able to sell air. It's not the same person. So the intermission, we're assessing our team. Talk to us about what that looks like. So the way I wrote the book is, uh, first of all, I, I think most entrepreneurs learn by stories or our own experiences. So in, rather than you go learn the stories the hard way, let's teach you what other people have done. And I'm not going to show you what they did. I'm going to show you what they did. I can't tell you how to do it. So that's the premise of the book. Each uh, in, Instead of giving advice in each of the chapters, because it became pretty redundant, we had the same advice for five different chapters, we decided to create these intermissions where we did mega topics of advice. So um, the first intermission is around assessing your team. Like, do you have the right team in place? And what happens if you don't? What can you do about it? And it's written kind of a fun Q&A style and... Um, I hope all of this is all written for like a fifth grade reader because that's who I am. So I hope it's Me all- Me too. Yeah, that's how we all read and comprehend. <laughs> Perfect. I've got so many half-written uh, business books on my nightstand because I just couldn't make it through other than the one thing. Good catch. All Thank right. you. <laughs> um, the second intermission is about bringing in executive hires. What do you need to look for? What are the types of questions to ask? How do you keep them out of your pipeline? Um, the third intermission is, is how to build a great culture. We talked earlier about purpose and core values and mission and really who do we, who are we as an organization? How do we attract people? And I don't want to say retain people because that acts like you're trying to keep them in prison. How can I continue to attract great employees once they're on my team? And the fourth intermission is, is sandwiched between my two Next Level Natalie chapters. The first one is about Next Level Natalie. Who is it and what's the concept and why is she important? The intermission is how to go find my Natalie. And the third chapter is how to... Uh, how to integrate and onboard, Natalie. And there's a lot of personal stories in Next Level, Natalie. So if you want to get all the dirt on Kurt, it's right there. I love that. Well, dirt on Kurt. So I know what your favorite little slogan is. It is, the bigger the storm, the more I'm going to learn. <laughs> Talk to us about what that means to you. I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit obvious, but there's got to be a backstory behind that. You know, there's, for me, there's, I, I, I rag on business books a lot, right? I think there's two versions. One is how-to and it's really good guides. And, and usually there's some really good stuff, but there's usually a lot of fluff. The second version is my 12 steps to being a billionaire and having sex every day or my follow my five steps and you'll be on the beach tomorrow, you know, whatever those things are. And forgive me if you guys have read those or written those books. Um, I, <laughs> no, but I want to read them now. <laughs> <laughs> I think... I, as I said before, I learn from my own experiences. I also learn from your story. So if you tell me how you accomplished something or how you failed at something, then I'm going to learn a lot. And I'm going to learn more from the show than I'm going to learn from the great story. I like to say I want to hear not just the glory stories, tell me the gory stories. That's where I really learn. I love that because I'm I'm a big proponent of like, you got to learn from the failures and you got to hear about all the tough stuff before you start to really celebrate the rest of it. Because that's really where you start to build character and learning. And yeah, failure is, failure is where we all grow. 
Yeah, one of the key components to how we coach to exponential success over time is reflection and the ability to just be honest with yourself or have someone help you be honest with yourself and figuring out what the the learnings are. If I was successful at something, what was that thing that I did that I want to repeat? If I was unsuccessful with something, what's the learning, what's the behavior I want to change and just constantly checking, adjusting at short intervals. I love it. And and your audience doesn't, they're so authentic and they're so humble, it sounds like, and they, they're they're learners. Those are the great folks for your book or, or your your uh, process. The knowers, they're not my audience. They're not your audience. They're a lot of people's, not their audience. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. And and I think it's being self-aware enough to know, like maybe you do have a skill set, but you don't walk into a room thinking you know more than anybody for any particular reason. You stay humble and be a learner forever. That's Techno Tim. He's the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> ah, let's talk about Techno Tim. <laughs> Is it like techno, like the music? It, uh, technical, like technology. Okay, I, mean, I, was, uh, I got excited for a second, but... Te- techno Tim's the smartest guy in the room and he's not afraid to let you know it. And uh, he doesn't hire very well because he has to be the smartest guy in the room. So he ends up hiring a, a team of C players, but it's always someone else's fault. Uh, he's gonna, he, He's kind of like Pipeline Paul where he's just demeaning you with... This is big boy stuff, Sarah. You don't understand. Um, this is new technologies we're trying to create. This is not, you know, off the shelf stuff. And he tends to make things more complicated than they need to be, but he's the smartest guy in the world. Well, thanks for, you know, I appreciate you walking through each one of those examples. I know that I have, I can relate to each one. Like I've experienced each one of those people in my career in different forms or fashions and the challenges that you're calling out that it creates are very relatable. Awesome. That's what I hope people nod their heads when they hear these stories. So I'm over here nodding my head. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So are there any tools that we can uh, share with our listeners or any tips or tricks we can give them on their way out? Yeah, I've got a fun quiz at whosyourmic.com slash quiz, which kind of, it's 16 questions and you can ask yourself, uh, do I have some of these characters in my my life? So that's kind of a fun tool. The other biggest tool I would tell you is, is A, you're not alone. Entrepreneurs, it just feels so lonely out there. But other, there's there's so many other people who have made similar mistakes. You, you're not the only one to make mistakes. So so don't fret about. It. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I want you to be continue to be confident. You've, as an entrepreneur, you've got to fake it till you make it a little bit, and you're not alone. Other people have made mistakes. Yeah, fake it till you become it. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. So we we know that you need tools and awareness skills to assess your team. You need to be able to figure out, do you have the right people? Not just for today, like get out of the, the, the roots of today, the challenges, the perceptions, the people of today. Imagine what success looks like for your business in the future. Do you have the right people to get there? Right, and, and in the form of an org chart, then we need to hire the right people based on that, right? So we've identified the need, then you need the skills and the tools to hire the right people. Once you have the right people, how do you sustain the right culture? And then ultimately, who is that next level Natalie? And then the process that you've, you've broken down from there. So with, with all of that, if you could just have our audience just take away one thing from the podcast today, what would it be? That I want Chris to come join me and run the Who's Your Mike consulting uh, department. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I, I think the biggest thing is, is probably those four questions. We wrestle with uh, key members of the team who've been so loyal. They've been in the foxhole with us the whole time. There's a reality at some point that we've outgrown them in their existing role. So what are those four questions I can ask to determine if they're the right person? Love it. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast with, with us today. This has been fantastic. I think everybody can relate to the content and I really hope they go pick up your your book, Who's Your Mic? And they can get those lessons at a deeper level. 
Yeah, thanks so much, Kurt. We really appreciate you. Awesome. I love the the one thing. Let's go. Let's go. 